Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're doing something a bit different. We're not asking, but looking back over some of our favourite moments and guests from the show this year. 2021 did start in grim form with an assault on the US Capitol and it ended with Omicron, the new Covid variant, causing havoc around the world. But you'll have been hearing plenty about those two in other 2021 roundups, so you might be pleased to learn that we're not going to be touching on either of them in this one. No, instead, in the spirit of giving, we wanted to share with you a festive hamper of our favourite moments from the past 12 months on the podcast. We've published 51 interviews this year. That's a full 24-hour day of Economist Asks. I'm just looking for sympathy for my work rate, really. We hope we've asked some of the big questions you wanted to hear answers to of everyone from geopolitical heavyweights like Christine Lagarde and Henry Kissinger to award-winning writers like Kazuo Ishiguro and Aaron Sorkin. We've also eyeballed Nobel Prize laureates, world-famous academics, Olympic champions, Fortune 500 CEOs and Succession's Logan Roy. Well, admittedly, the actor Brian Cox, who fills his bossy boots. Choosing highlights from such a spread was always going to lead to a heated debate in our office. But one thing that did keep coming up was the conversations we'd had about how our ways of work and business are changing in 2021. From technological breakthroughs to shifting workplaces, these are areas undergoing rapid and historic change. And across this episode, you're going to hear from six of our liveliest guests, all of them leaders in their field, who've addressed this in their own way. And where better to start than with a bit of future gazing? Kai-Fu Lee is a Taiwan-born AI pioneer, and he's been a texter for the past three decades. Trained as a computer scientist, he's led high-ranking teams at Microsoft, Apple and Google. And these days, you'll find him in the China Premier League at Sinovation Ventures in Beijing. When I spoke to Kai-Fu in August, soon after the publication of his book, AI 2041, I asked him whether he thought the conventional assumption that artificial intelligence would replace blue-collar jobs first and professional white-collar ones later was in fact correct. The next five years, we'll probably see more white-collar routine jobs being replaced because all of us do some routine work, some more than others. Let's say, think about the job of someone who's um, filing expense reports for, on behalf of employees and issuing payments and checks and so on. Every step of that can be completely captured as keystrokes and mouse movements. And those are very routine, very predictable, very template-based. So an AI 
In fact, a technology called robotic process automation is already replacing jobs like that as we speak. So the routine jobs in the white collar are the most prone, especially given COVID has made a lot of people necessary to work from home. Their work is already converted into a digital stream. It makes it very convenient to be displaced either by outsourcing it or having AI take it over. But in the 10 to 15 year time horizon, many blue collar work will also be prone for displacement. We spoke a number of years ago about whether you could replace me with some of your AI. Have I, have I become more replaceable in the meantime? No, not, not at all. Not at all. I think a journalist who writes regularly routine content, for example, sports events, and also reporters who are merely reading off a teleprompter, of course, that's even more easily to be replaced. But a, a thoughtful interviewer who's asking tough questions, who needs to understand not just the words, but the deep concepts, I don't think we're anywhere uh, close to replacing you, Anne. You don't know how relieved I am as I uh, look to my pension planning to hear that, Kaifu. I'm feeling you might just be being a bit polite, actually. <laughs> I'm going to come back to you with that challenge. I have promised, uh, promised or threatened that a number of times. Let's see if we could do something in the next five years. You say that this acceleration in the, of AI and its impacts will create unprecedented job displacement. So biggest winners, biggest losers, very broad brush. What do you predict on that score? Some of them are pretty obvious, right? People who are incredibly smart, creative, strategic, people who are CEOs, scientists, those cannot be replaced by AI. In fact, some of them will program AI. Those will be big winners. Big losers will be everyone whose job is routine and everyone whose job consists of little pieces that require repetition and even a very little bit of thinking, let's say less than five seconds to make a decision. And I think a big surprising set of winners will be uh, people whose work may be somewhat routine, but are very much about human touch. So compassion, empathy, collaboration, teamwork, winning people's trust, people whose jobs may be a, a concierge, a, a tour guide, or someone in healthcare services. I think in um, 20 years, people will be paid not just based on how much economic contribution, but how much they make other people feel better, how much they are indispensable in the process of winning people over, whether it's customer or something else. So those human services jobs that maybe not the most desirable today will go through a substantial uh, uplift over time. 2021 was a difficult year for women in the workplace, but there have been some notable breakthroughs. In January, Kamala Harris became America's first ever female vice president. In March, Citigroup's incoming CEO, Jane Fraser, finally broke Wall Street's glass ceiling, becoming the first woman to head up a big American bank. The same month, we welcomed two other glass ceiling destroyers to the show, Joanna Coles and Melora Hardin. Coles is a British-born media executive who's managed the Hearst Corporation's 300 magazine titles around the world. And Hardin is an Emmy-nominated American actress, perhaps best known for her role as Steve Carell's ferocious boss Jan in the American version of The Office. Their stories came together because Hardin played a fictionalised version of Coles in the TV series The Bold Type, following a group of young women making their way at a glossy New York magazine. 
Jacqueline, the editor-in-chief character played by Harden, is hyper-compassionate and supportive to everyone in her office, just like the real world then. So I asked Coles whether a woman who was so nice most of the time would really have got to the top. She had an answer for me. I think that you wouldn't ask that question of a man. And I think there are many roles of men bosses on television that you just accept that the guy is a good dude. And we can't do it about women. And it's really tragic. And it's something fundamental at the heart of our culture, which makes me really despair. I mean, I might or might not have asked it of a man. That's a fair point. But I suppose there's also, I could be saying, if she was like that, would she have been allowed to become the woman boss in the first place? Well, why wouldn't you be allowed to be a woman boss because you're pleasant? Because there is that sense of the woman having to exude a kind of toughness. I look at very specific women who only encouraged me, which didn't mean that they weren't sometimes quite harsh in their critique of what I was doing. But it was always coming from a place of you can be better. Here is how to get better. Just keep moving. Jacqueline Carlyle is much more glamorous. She's much nicer than I could ever hope to be. But I think we show her toughness and her resolve in the conflict that she has with some of the senior men at the company. So we're not showing that she's a pushover, but we're also not showing her groping her underlings or sexually harassing people, as unfortunately we're learning was happening with a lot of male bosses. Talking from a publication, The Economist has a female editor-in-chief and it has a female CEO. So certainly a lot has changed. And I just wonder, Joanna, if you look back, how much do you think has changed over the last, say, 25, 30 years since we started out in journalism? In some ways, I think that we had a lot more security, but at the same time, the technological challenges were vast. I think women have made enormous strides. It's incredibly unusual now to go into a room I would say in almost everything except finance, I've recently pivoted into finance and I'm really shocked by the dearth of women there, especially women writing big checks. But it's very unusual now to go into a room where there is only one woman. Whereas I think when I was embarking on my career, it was very common to go into a room and you would be the only woman. And what about in acting, Melora? What's the comparison there for your route to screen and and stage in terms of how much has changed. I think you've been acting for a very long time and you got, got going in there. I did. I started when I was six years old. Yeah, I mean, I think it's completely different <laughs> now than when, it, when I was a child. And I've seen so many things change. I remember the first time I was directed by a woman. That was when I was in my late teens. And I remember how sexualized she was by the crew, looking back on it now, which is really interesting. Although I think she somewhat played that up and was using that to her advantage. She was wonderful. I, I, I really loved her. But yeah, she was definitely looking back on it now. I definitely see what part of what she was doing. But that's it's interesting that it took that long before you encountered just a woman who was sort of holding the power there in terms of shaping what was going to come out. And then, of course, I have a very, a very sad story about women. When I was 18, I was hired to play McFly's girlfriend in Back to the Future. And Eric Stoltz was actually playing McFly at first, and then he was let go. And when he was let go, they came and they told me that they were going to have to let me go because they hired Michael J. Fox and they said... I was too tall to play his girlfriend. And now remember at that time, I was 18 years old. I remember just being in floods of tears about it. 
I just found out last year by the guy who's writing the book about Back to the Future. He called me and we had a whole interview and he said, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale were fine with you being taller than Michael J. Fox. It was female executives that felt that it disempowered their hero to have a girlfriend that was taller than him. And I was shocked to hear this. But if you think about that, that, that was like, what, 1985 or something. I thought, wow, we have come a long way. I would be shocked if that happened today. Now, my next guest wasn't even born when Back to the Future came out, but here is a sobering thought. She's already worth more than its entire cast combined. Frustrated by online misogyny, and particularly so in the dating realm, Whitney Wolfheard founded the female-friendly dating app Bumble in 2014. In February of this year, aged just 31, she became the youngest woman ever to take a company public. The moment when she rang the Nasdaq bell also marked another record. Wolf Heard became the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. We spoke to her in June and she explained how an imbalance in the way the sexes interrelate became a powerful selling point for her app. What, what happens to a woman in hookup culture? Well, let's actually look at this for a quick second. If a woman and a man do have a casual encounter... You know, the way pop culture and media and and television have have shown us is that the man the next day, you know, fist bumps with his friends. It's a bragging event. It's a it's a win. It's a it's a cool thing. And the woman is left either trying to pretend it didn't happen, feeling shameful about it. She's hiding under the, the covers like, oh, no, I feel so bad about myself. Why did I do this? And so look at that dynamic, how broken that is, right? And so that's the issue there. It's not necessarily that two individuals with consent want to engage in something casual. It's that the way gender dynamics have put the shame and blame on women. And so we're trying to lean into really encouraging women to feel empowered in whatever they're looking for. And if they don't want that, do not do that, right? And so Bumble is about giving control and power to the women. The brand is built very strongly around female empowerment and feminism of this corporate variety, or perhaps not only corporate, but sort of institutionalized feminism is in demand now. Do you sometimes feel that you might be cashing in on a, a trend to sort of dress everything up in feminism that might just be a good idea for a good business for the reasons that you reflected. The fundamental things apply. People like getting it on together. I think anybody could find that lens. We're an easy target for that for that conversation. But I started this business in 2014. This was before the fallout of women in tech. This was before Me Too. This was before Time's Up. We have been going out the door saying women make the first move. Women be in control of your experience. Women change the rules of the game. You you have your voice. You have your power. Own it. We've been saying that before the fallout of of this masculine conversation, which has led to a resurgence of of a lot of you know empowerment for women. And am I sitting here claiming that we we are responsible for any? even micro part of feminism? Absolutely not. You know, we never woke up and said, oh, let's go cash in on this trend that's coming around the corner. That was not, that's never been the focus. This has been built with genuine intent and authenticity and just a real desire to say, 
let's simplify this. I hate that I have to wait to send a message to a guy. Why am I crying over boys all through my college years? Why are all of my friends? Why is my sister? Why is every woman I know agonizing over relationships with men? This is broken. This is wrong. And when you reduce it down to why is this happening, it's because he's the boss. He's the boss who says hi first. He asks for the number. He approaches. He asks out on the date. You know, I've had conversations with my grandmother about this. This has been a plague of of women's lives for far too long. And that was the intention. It was never, oh, let's go put feminist on a t-shirt and sell it for $25, which by the way, we don't do. And I'm glad that that feminism has become popular because it means we're changing the narrative and people can criticize that. But I do think we're going in the right direction. In October, we spoke to another female trailblazer and the first woman of colour to run a Fortune 50 company. Indra Nui was born in India, but she made her career in the US, rising up the ranks at PepsiCo to become its CEO in 2006, a position she held for 12 years, during which time the company's sales grew by 80%. Having stepped down from Pepsi, she currently sits on the board at Amazon and recently published a tell-all memoir, My Life in Full. I was struck by a story within its pages, which reveals that even at the very top of the professional ladder, women still struggle to escape a view of themselves as the traditional homemakers. So I took the opportunity to ask her about it. There's an anecdote in your book when you become president of PepsiCo and and return in triumph to tell your mother. Uh, And instead of showering you with praise and I suppose demanding that you immediately go and get a new suit, she says you should go out and buy milk, even though you point out someone else, possibly like even a husband, could have gone for the milk. You may be president or whatever of PepsiCo, I think is her uh, only only a mother is allowed to say this quote. But when you come home, you're a wife and a mother and a daughter. What was your response? Well, for an instant, I was mad because I thought she should have let me enjoy my crown for just a minute. I felt that this is such an unfair world because had it been my husband who walked in and said that, we would have polished that crown for him. On the other hand, in retrospect, I'm, I'm coming around to saying my mother was actually giving us a more profound lesson. She was saying that when you come home, you're the only people who can be the parents of your children. You're the people who are the children of the family to the mothers and the mother, my mother and my in-laws who were around at that time. And we had responsibilities at home that were different than the responsibilities at work. And you spend a lot of your waking hours at work when you come home. Leave that crown in the garage. Put on your humility hat and come in and you know, be a member of the family. I think it was a very, very valuable lesson. Even though deep down inside, I said, let me enjoy my brief moment of fame. Uh, To be honest, I think she grounded me. And uh, I'm actually grateful to her for that. You don't think that it demonstrated attention, not only in a particular family context, but that the idea that women can have it all on the same terms that men have been fortunate, successful, well-supported, have been able to to have it all. You don't think there's still a bit of that story that speaks to that unfairness as well as, yes, you should still be a grade-A parent when you get home as much as it's hard enough being a grade-A employee, isn't it, really, or employer, and then having to, to shed it and be something else at home. Is that something we ask more from women, Indra? It feels a bit like me, like, that may be true. <laughs> 
My mother belongs to a different generation. I mean, a completely different generation. She was in a generation where women were, you know, the homekeepers and for the entire life, they sort of managed the house. That's the generation she came from. The fact that she put her foot on the accelerator and let the daughter soar is a very positive reflection of her. If I now told my daughters, leave the crown in the garage, that would be a travesty. And I don't. I always encourage them to have equality in whatever relationships they're in. And the fact that, you know, the time has gone by where the woman did all the housework and the child rearing and uh, the ideal worker was just a man. So those days are over. So I think now there should be more equality in everything that a couple do. Equality and inequalities of other sorts were making the headlines in 2021 as the gap between the ultra-rich and the rest continued to widen. In May, we spoke to someone who's an unabashed member of the 1% or possibly even a bit of the 1%. Ray Dalio is the founder and former chief of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund. He's a billionaire many times over and he's known for promoting a culture of radical transparency within his firm, where employees are encouraged to air and to receive grievances and criticisms. Hoping he'd bring some radical transparency to our interview, I asked him about what must have been 2021's strangest finance story, the few days in January, when a group of Reddit users drove up the share price of the American video game retailer GameStop from $17 to over $500, in part as a way to troll hedge funds who'd previously shorted the stock. So I wanted to know what a Brahmin hedge funder made of the store and of the Redditor's avowed hatred of his trade. His answer surprised us. I loved it because it was just like me when I was starting out, you know, um, young, enthusiastic, people playing the markets, you know, and, and of course, I think that they view the hedge fund as the establishment. And so I get that because I, you know, when I started out of a two bedroom apartment, I did it. I, and I was uh, like loving to challenge the establishment. And then you play and you learn, you know, so they're playing and they're learning. And uh, so I relate very much to it. Do you think the Redditors had a point in that they were saying big hedge funds rig, and I'm using rigging in inverted commas here, but rig the market with their power and their influence a lot of the time? I, you know, I get, you know, we are the largest hedge fund and I can tell you we, we can't rig the market and we don't rig the market. So I think, every, you know, it goes back to what is going on behind the curtain. And when you use the term hedge funds, I think that p- people imagine a lot of things that are going on behind the markets, but it's a very regulated market. And if you look to history, and I know you like to take a broad sweep, and this is something you're standing back and doing, particularly uh, now and looking forwards, where do you find examples that align with the presence? Is there a year in your mind that 2020, 2021 compares to? Oh, yes. Well, there are three major things, I think, that are going on. And uh, the last time they went on was in the 19. 19- 30 to 45 period. And those three things, besides the pandemic, but those three things are um, the hitting of zero interest rates and the creation of enormous amounts of debt that is being monetized by the central bank has big implications for markets and our living standards and so on. The second is very large gaps in wealth 
income and politics, which is having very big implications, very much like President Biden equals President Roosevelt in the policies and so on, because you have a movement to redistribute the wealth and rectify some of those imbalances. And the third big thing is the rise of a great power to challenge an an existing great power, the rise of China to challenge the United States in changing the world order. Now, those three factors, you go back to the 1930 to 45 period, and you can find those same factors at work. This dynamic that is happening now, when you have not enough money to spend and you have a large wealth gap and a large political and values gap is causing uh, conflict, internal conflict, and the need to produce a lot of money and credit and and a lot of spending. And that's what's happening now. Last thought, you've said meditating is the key to your success. The kind of meditating lay person in me thinks, can you really switch off when you're running a business like yours? Oh, it's it's a practice that's an, an exercise that allows you to transcend into your subconscious. Uh, the way it works is there's a sound, uh, it's called a mantra, that you repeat in your head. Give an example, might be something like OM, and you repeat it. And when you do that, you can't be thinking thoughts and thinking OM at the same time. So you go to OM after a while, and then the OM disappears, and you go into your subconscious mind. Now, your subconscious mind is where creativity and intuition uh, comes from, and it also gives one an equanimity, a calmness. I think it's powerful for everyone, but like in my business, just the ability to sit back and as there's all of this stuff happening and sometimes in a chaotic or could be nerve-wracking way to be able to just look at it with that calmness and, and approach it gives me a little bit sense of like I see in the uh, Chinese movies with these ninjas. Everything sort of slows down and it just get, helps to navigate that. So I really recommend meditation. I do transcendental meditation, whatever kind of meditation suits you. I, I think it's the most important gift I can give anyone. Well, there you go, the gift of meditation from one of the world's richest men. It clearly worked for him. How many of you thought this would turn up in your Christmas stockings this year? Let us know if you're inspired to follow Ray Dalio's advice or if you're hoping that perhaps AI can do the meditating on your behalf. But we'd also be very curious to know what you thought the highlights were from this show this year. Do write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Pods, and I promise I will read it all over a large glass of sherry. Wishing you a very happy and peaceful new year from all of us at Economist Podcasts. We'll be back next week. My producer across all the ups and downs of 2021 has been Alessia Burrell, and on this special review, Pete Norton. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.